0: Right. So, continuing in our study of Revelation, the judgment of Revelation in particular, which is what's on this screen right here. Get out of your way. We're almost done, (laughs) at least with the with the judgment part of it. Um, Marty last week finished up the seven sets of judgments with the seven bowls. And one of the last things that he read there, I've got to read it here so I'll be sure I get it right. In chapter 16, verse 17, the angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. I guess Revelation could have ended right there. But God decided that we need a little more information, another look at... Need to push that away a little? Okay, is that... In a little bit. In a little bit. Is that better? All right, good. Sorry about that. I will never get used to this. (laughs) Anyway. So the next four chapters, we're going to take another look, another perspective on... The victorious and the defeated. In this conflict that we've been watching all through Revelation and reading about, uh, it's a conflict that began, at least the position we're, we're taking here, we've been arguing for, with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's a conflict that will end when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, we will find ourselves part of what in chapter 7 was called the Great Tribulation. Now the chapters on the defeated, which I'm going to be starting into this week, uh, have to do with learning about what was going on from a little different viewpoint than what we've seen in the various judgments and the things up coming up to that. Uh, we know about the beast from chapter 13 and chapter 16. And that there was this image with this beast of having some sort of political, maybe military power that he exercised to, uh, as we'll look again here before this morning, make war on the saints. But we're going to find out a little more now that that was accompanied by some economic and cultural power exercised by Babylon the Great. In this Babylon becomes a symbol or a code word for to quote a commentator any anti-godly arrogant idolatrous or oppressive institution or system on earth that stands against our creator god. This is much much broader definition of idolatry than just worshiping the image of the beast. And it's going to be one of those situations where we think of ourselves as being standing as solid Christians and thinking, I would never go worship that image over there. We're going to find out this bigger definition of idolatry might, you know, gone from preaching to meddling with us here. It's going to be talking about where we are, probably more where we live today than some other times in church history. So let's start with the text. Couple first couple verses get going on it here. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, "Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk." This is the first time in Revelation that we see the word prostitute. Some English translations have harlot or whore. Uh, That kind of follows the traditional King James Version translation of harlot. But there's an economic aspect to the word prostitute. This is somebody who practiced sexual immorality as a profession. This is how they make their living. And that's really much more like what we're going to see, particularly when we get into chapter 18. The character is described here as seated on many waters, which is probably an allusion to Jeremiah's prophecy of the destruction of ancient Babylon at the end of Jeremiah in chapter 51. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come, the thread of your light cut out. The phrase including the words here in these verses of wine of sexual immorality, that should sound familiar. We saw that back in chapter 14, the declaration of the third, uh, second angel, fallen, fallen as Babylon the great, she who made all nations drunk with the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we gotta remember, sexual immorality, sexual impurity, uh, sexual unfaithfulness as a metaphor for idolatry all throughout the Old Testament and as a metaphor for idolatry all through revelation. So with that kind of the introductory ideas here we, we've been've we've heard a few things like this before but we're going to see more of it now More of a description. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So John, in his other vision, repeats an experience that he's had already. This idea of in the spirit, we saw at the very beginning, John started out in chapter one, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I don't think he anticipated what was going to happen after that. But there was lots of things that that followed. When you get to chapter four, we see again that John was in the spirit. Uh, He looked and a door was open in heaven and he was called to come up there and he was transported in the spirit, he says, basically to the throne room of heaven. And we'll see this again before we're done, but we have this in-the-spirit idea here again. We, we have a similar picture to what we've seen before. John's transfer, transformed or transported this time into a spiritual wilderness. And the judgment of the great prostitute is what he's going to be shown here. Now, verse 1, we read that this character was seated on many waters, But here, we see that John's vision is of a wilderness. It's the same word that's used for desert in the New Testament. So, is the setting for John here, are we supposed to have in our mind, a desert or a wetland? Well, the answer, in true apocalyptic style, is yes. This is not unusual. Isaiah's prophecy against Babylon in chapter 21 starts out, an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. The same word, basically, there in Hebrew. that's translated into Greek. And the whirlwinds, and the Negev, you know, so that's the desert area. So we got a sea. Anyway, what's going on with this? Clearly, we have symbolic geography going here. Okay? Don't try to find this on a map. It's really going to be tough. And allusions to chapter 21 of Isaiah are not foreign to what we're looking at here because that's where the phrase, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, comes from. In 21 verse 9. The woman in John's vision is set on a scarlet beast, it says. Now, we have not seen anything scarlet in Revelation so far. But we have seen a great red dragon back in chapter 12. And that dragon had, interestingly enough, seven heads and ten horns. And when we get to chapter 13, which is right after chapter 12, we find a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and blasphemous names on his heads. There's a lot of similar terminology here. The beast on which woman sat was clearly connected somehow with the dragon and the beast. Next, we get a description of the woman. And we know that she's the great prostitute. We were just told that in verse 1. That's what we're going to be talking about here. And associated with the beast upon which she sat. But to appreciate the drama, really, the dramatic impact of the vision, we need to try to uh, hear or listen to this appearance from kind of a more of a first-century context. So, everybody jump into your way-back machine. We're going to get transported back into the late first century to the meeting of the church, a church. And this is a special meeting because someone's going to come to them and is going to read them. You probably wouldn't read it yourself. You'd just be listening. Read them this apocalypse of John, this revelation of John. Now... How many weeks are we going to spend on that? All in one sitting, they're going to hear this. Uh, Just as a challenge to you, if you take the time to sit down and read Revelation out loud at a leisurely pace, pace, it takes about an hour and ten minutes. But that's what they experienced on a regular basis. All the New Testament books were all read in one sitting when they were going to the churches. <clears throat> now, so what are we hearing here? Well, we've got this first century context. we got to think of being in that kind of a world. The woman's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. This was not the typical image of a prostitute. You're going to have people in this audience saying, wait a minute. This is the image the attire of a woman of noble birth. This is somebody who's maybe a member of one of the elite families of the Roman Empire. Even right up to the golden cup, you have a picture of, that typified the culture and wealth of the time. But the truth immediately followed. The cup was full of abominations and impurities of our sexual immorality. The word translated impurities here was the same word that we saw just back in chapter 16, when John describes a vision that out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits went forth. Same word, unclean, as we have here with impurities. And the identification that the reader here now suspected is made certain by the name of a by a name of mystery written on her forehead: Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, abominations which is variously translated detestable things, obscenities in some translations, is also making its first appearance in Revelation here. It means something disgusting and loathsome. It's a contrast, a stark contrast, for the appearance of glamour with this woman seated on the beast. As we have seen throughout Revelation, what is written on a person's forehead is the truth of who they really are, what their worldview is, what their values really are. And this image it's even more alarming because John is told that she was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. John's reaction to the vision was, he marveled greatly. It's a Greek idiom which basically says, you know, great astonishment or wonderment of what you've seen there. It can express the idea of being extraordinarily impressed or disturbed. And I think for John it might have been a little bit of both. I think they responded the way he did because the woman was not dressed as a prostitute. Put yourself back in our way back machine in the first century again. You're probably a, a slave or at least someone with a manual labor job and you think, Well, <laughs> this is not what those women down at the corner from work where I work, that's not what they look like. But rather it's a picture of a respectable woman wearing the apparel of royalty and wealth. We'll later see, in chapter 18, that her clothing included fine linen, which in Revelation is consistently an image or a symbol for purity. And if you know anything about the first century culture of the Mediterranean, the noble families and the the elite families of the time, uh, a woman was expected to exhibit purity in the Greco-Roman world. That was one of her jobs. It makes more sense that someone associated with the beast would have a more distasteful appearance of some kind. The beast certainly did in all the descriptions we see of it. But this is an important contrast in images that's really gonna get played out throughout chapter 17 and 18. The power of the beast was overt, was coercive, it was brutal. But the power of this woman is subtle and seductive. There's some debate among commentators as to the intent of the angel's uh, question to John, why do you marvel here? Was it a rebuke, suggesting that maybe he was taken in by this image, like those who don't know God, maybe were taken in? Uh, Or was it a rhetorical question that John understood the significance of vision. He understood the dissonance. He saw that as something that was important. I'm kind of inclined toward the second part of that because uh, I think that John experienced one of those light bulb moments with this image uh, when he saw an important truth that the contrast between these images, the beast and the woman, There's much more to be feared, maybe, from the subtle and the seductive than there is from the overt and coercive. The angel's willingness to go on and speak is another reason, I think, to to tell him the mystery of the woman and of the beast. So apparently he thought John understood things okay so far. And we'll see that this uh, same word translated marvel here is used down in verse 8 of a different context. Those in verse 8 marveled, but it's because they were enthralled by the beast. The angel promised to tell John the mystery of the woman and the beast and the seven heads and ten horns that carries her off. Finally, we're going to get an answer to all these strange symbols and what it means, right? Well, unfortunately not. Uh, The Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our word mystery, is... doesn't mean quite the same thing. It's really a a challenge for a lot of people who do serious Bible translation. We think of the word mystery as being a secret that needs, you know, that will be revealed, something we need to discover, we need to uncover, we need to decode in some way. But mystery in the New Testament is consistently a word used to describe the transcendence of God, which we don't understand. Is consistently used to describe these things that God is doing in his time, and his history, and the effect it has on humanity. We'll see some of that. But knowing the mind of God, like Paul says, who can know the mind of God? We can't. This is transcendent truth. It's beyond us. So when the angel explains this mystery to John, don't expect any great reveals of any kind. All right? Get the next part of the text here. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was not it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he may he must remain only a little while. Perfectly clear, right? <laughs> We've already seen a vision of the bottomless pit. A couple of them, actually. Corbach started in chapter 9. we got another one in chapter 11 where it says that. When the two witnesses had finished their testimony, and the two witnesses are pictures or types of the church, that the beast that rises from the bottomless pit made war against them. The effectively, this repeats here in chapter 17 with the phrase about to rise from the bottomless pit. John was told that the people on earth will marvel when they see the beast this recalled chapter 13 where it was said of the beast that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but the mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marvelled and they followed the beast and also in chapter 13 it says and those who live on the earth will worship him everyone whose name is not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life And so we have a repetition of that idea here again as well, the whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world. It's the same story being told again from a little different perspective. And that's really consistently what we've seen. Now, the dwellers on the earth are apparently very easily deceived. They can be deceived by this ugly beast but not us. We would never be deceived by anything like that, would we? But we're going to learn about a different kind of deception as we kind of go forward with the the Babylon, the the mother of prostitutes. Why Why are people so easily deceived? Well, I think that it's worth taking a moment here and talk about the idea that part of the sinful nature of mankind puts us in a position that theologians call the noetic effects of sin. So noetic comes from the Greek word to think. And it's a blinding of a human mind by sin, resulting in the inability to accurately apprehend reality, especially spirituality, and to respond to scriptural truth. We're not immune from this when we become believers. As long as we're in these, on this earth and we're in these non-glorified bodies, we always have to deal with sin. And so we're just as subject and just as prone to some of this noetic effect of, thi- of sin in our lives as anybody else. And we should never get ourselves to the point where we think, well, I would always be able to tell if this was something as evil as the beast or as evil as the Babylon. Paul knew this. After he finished his great series in Romans, first eight chapters and the next three chapters on all this doctrinal issues and things like that, he starts in chapter 12 to a practical section. We've seen that pattern before in Paul's writings. He gets the doctrine out of the way, the theology out of the way, then he gets to the practical stuff. And Paul began that next section, passage I'm sure is familiar to everybody, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we do that? Well, we do it with the word of God. We don't do it by just our own observation. Or even listening to other people that much. We need to always be checking. Remember the Bereans. They listened to Paul and they still went back and checked the scripture to see what he was saying. We need to be about that because we're subject to this just like people around us. Next, the angel told John, this calls for a mind of wisdom. We've seen that before as well. Back in chapter 13, where this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. That's just about as mysterious as this, as strange as the one we're looking at here. The angel continued, the seven heads are seven mountains, and they are also seven kings. At this point, I hope it's pretty clear that this language is all very highly symbolic. Mountains and kings, you know, they're the same thing. Seven, what's seven mean? Seven is the number of completeness or fullness. Mountains are metaphors for strength or dominion in the scripture. The woman has some kind of power over kings since she is seated on the seven mountains. Kings symbolize any political and probably military power of some kind. That there are seven kings represents a complete number, a complete fullness. There is always one who is, there's always a current government, a current institution or institutions, if you want to lump them all together right now, There's always one who was in the past, and one is to come. So you can see how this goes. Now, the one is is just one. The one ahead is the next one, the five or before. That's the way that seven sort of breaks down in this. So we can say at any point in church history that what John was told is that, okay, we're not there yet, but it's close. And that's really how we live. We're not quite there yet, but it's close. And we need to, that's, That imminent idea is very important to Christianity. To this point, the symbolic picture, also John mentioned that the last king would remain only a little while. So at this point, the symbolic picture in which the woman exerts some dominion over political powers in the earth, uh, we have that, we have this as a case where some in, has been that way for some indefinite period of time, uh, but there will be a time when things will change, and the final political power on earth will be cut short. <clears throat> now, the angel shifted abruptly back now to the character of the beast, bringing up, bringing, beginning with a variation on the statement applied to the beast previously. <clears throat> it says, As for the beast, that was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Again, is all just perfectly clear, right? <clears throat> okay, it starts out with this familiar was and is not. We've seen that already. In fact, we've got three places in here that we see that. Was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Was and is not, and is to come. And then was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Now, in one way, all these statements parody what we read about God already in Revelation that God, who is and who was and who is to come. So there's a parody of that going on here as well. At some point, what this is telling us is the beast will insert itself into the successions of governments by becoming the eighth king and probably supplants that future king that was cut off. And so it seems to belong to the seven. We know the monstrous beast rises from the abyss, the place of evil, in order to wage war on God's people. But the picture is quickly altered here. This intimidating character goes from something fearful to something almost comic. You see the beast all puffed up and pumped up and ready to go and rising from the pit, from the abyss, and to destruction it goes. That phrase in the Greek is exactly the end of chapter 8. No, verse 8 and verse 11. That's the sort of sandwich here. To destruction it goes. The drama of Revelation and the connection of the beast to the seven kings makes the beast the, a tranced temporal kind of character in this cross time that intrudes into all of earthly authorities until the return of Jesus maybe not as overtly as we see described here at the very end, but to some extent influencing all this. This is why human government can never totally solve the problem of sin. God in his sovereignty allows these governments to exercise a, a coercive power, they carry the sword as Paul said, to restrain the worst of human nature. I've got a quote from Peter here too that I think is a pretty good summary of this. I think I left a verse off, honor the king or something there. Anyway, all governments are populated by sinful people. They're all institutions with long history of being corrupted by power and abuse, no matter where it is, no matter who it is, no matter what time in history it is. We should not expect anything different is the key here. But unless we are being coerced by those authorities— to a certain kind of behavior or affirmation beliefs that's contrary to a biblical worldview, our obligation is pretty much to be good citizens. And that's what was true in the first century. There may be something about what you feel deeply that involves a political or a legal issue relevant to the country in which we live. I know I have some of those. But we have to be very careful not to conflate or confuse those views with the timeless truths of Scripture. Our first loyalty, our primary loyalty, really our only loyalty that means anything, is to our Lord Jesus Christ and the principles of his word. This brings us to the ten horns, in which John was told are ten kings. We're back to kings again. The symbolism of biblical literature, horns are symbols of strength. Ten is the number of wholeness or fullness. So ten horns or kings represent the totality of human strength. John was also told they have not yet received that power. This is happening. This is something that hasn't happened yet. Literally, it's not yet received authority as kings. But there will be a time in the future at which they will receive that authority along with the beast. And so we have this picture of the beast wielding all the fullness of human political and military power. And that's a pretty ominous picture. But it is not new to John's visions. We've already seen it. In the previous chapter leading up to chapter the seventh bowl of judgment, we read go abroad, these spirits that we talked about already, to the kings of the whole world and assemble them for battle at a place called Armageddon. Now chapter seventeen is another picture of the same view of the same thing, another perspective on the same thing. And Armageddon didn't turn out so well for the people of Earth. The truth will be this will be true of this what John is seeing here and describing as well. And in this vision that John has, we get an important extra piece of information we haven't seen yet. The alliance of the whole of human strength and the beast will have a very short life. One hour. Now that's a symbolic hour, but that's about as short as you're gonna get other than minute, if you're gonna talk about things symbolically. Next week, we'll look at another aspect of this gathering of the beast and these kings. Uh, For now, John was only told that all of these, all kings and the beast, were all of one mind, and they hand over the power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Beast and his allies were agreed on that common goal. They may not agree much else, but they're agreed on this. We're going to make war on the Lamb. That brings us together several threads we found throughout Revelation. And again, I think it's important we see the continuity of all this. If we were in our pretend first century setting there from our way back machine, it wouldn't have been that long since we heard all these things. They'd be fresh in our memory. We saw it back in chapter 11. Where they make war on the on the two witnesses, Uh, chapter twelve, the dragon was became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That was a symbolic picture of the of Christ and his church from the woman there. Uh, Chapter thirteen, humanity worshipped the dragon, his authority and the beast. They worshipped who is like the beast who can fight against him, like nobody can stand against his power is also as a beast was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. In Revelation 16, I put all these frogs here, these that came out of their mouths, are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world and assemble them for battle against the God Almighty. This is a consistent picture all through Revelation that we're bringing together now as we pull this thing again to the end uh, in chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. Chapter 17's perspective on the conflict says the lamb will conquer them. Simply lamb will conquer them. Doesn't give us much information. Remember chapter 16 had earthquakes and all kinds of things going on. It just says the lamb will conquer. And we should uh, see note the reason too. He will simply conquer them because he is simply the Lord of lords and the King of kings. We should note that Lord of lords is a title that's applied to God in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, "For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and great and mighty and awesome God." And in Psalm one thirty six, "Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever." It's another one of those many confirmations of the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity that get woven into Revelation. I want to wrap up this morning. Let's see how I'm doing on time here with some thoughts on those who were with the Lamb for that great victory that we have described. They are described by three adjectival nouns that can be translated literally, called ones, and chosen ones, and faithful ones. This was the conclusion, you know, these are words chosen and called, you can find them throughout the New Testament. Uh, but they're only used together in one other place in the New Testament. And it's at the end of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22. You'll recognize the words, For many are called, but few are chosen. So I'm going to look at that parable quickly here because I think it gives us a sense or a hint or some understanding of what these words mean, even here in Revelation. Jesus has just made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, and he's teaching in parables as he often did. And he says in Matthew 22 verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come. So he sent his servants out again. They were ignored. They were mistreated. Some were even killed. And in his wrath, the king destroyed everyone who was invited in their cities. That's Jesus' parable, not mine. Anyway, then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So therefore, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, So the wedding hall was filled with guests, but when the king came to look on those guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The man was speechless. Now this parable is something of a puzzle to us. I hope you will admit that. I think it helps a little bit at least, and there is disagreement amongst commentators and expositors about this, but I think it helps to have a little bit of understanding what it meant to be invited to a wedding in the first century. Getting our back in our way back machine again here. That puts certain obligations on a person who was invited, who was planning to attend. These varied depending on the wealth and the status of the family who was holding this wedding feast. Very, very wealthy families would sometimes provide special garments for their guests. <laughs> we still do that in some modern weddings, provide bridesmaid dresses and groomsmen. You know That's the same idea that's carried forward even to today. More often, however, the guests were expected to dress the best they could in accordance with their own resources. Someone who was well-to-do would be expected to wear their most valuable garment this wedding. Someone with very limited resources would expect to wear what they had, but they had to make sure, maybe just one thing, but they had to make sure it was clean. That was important. The parable that Jesus told, he sent his servants out and invited everyone they found on the street, so you can imagine who that would include here. These are people who, most of them, probably had one change of clothes. The guest who was singled out was questioned by the king, probably came wearing his only garment, but you know what? He came without cleaning it first. You think, well, that's that's kind of an onerous obligation to put on somebody. Well, that was expected in this world of honor and shame. This is a great insult to come to the wedding. This important king, an important wedding, an important dinner to be at, and to not even go to the... Ex- effort to make sure your clothes were clean well it was a harsh retribution for this too the king said to his attendants bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then the final words of the parable for many are called but few are chosen What this tells us, I think, is that the called here and also in Revelation speaks to both the general call to all people as well as that individual work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment and brings us to the cross to begin with. Chosen speaks to the reality that we come into the kingdom of heaven only on God's terms, not ours. Now, it's important, I think, that the called and chosen is not something we can accomplish for ourselves. It's something that God has done himself for us, something he has granted by his grace. But what about the faithful? That's the final piece. The Greek word translated faithful can also mean trustworthy or dependable. It's used seven times in Revelation apart from the the text here in chapter 17. Three of those are used to describe Jesus. Certainly fits there. Faithful, dependable, trustworthy. We'll see two more later where it describes what John has written down from this vision. But the remaining two occurrences are the ones most relevant to us and they both occur in the letters to the churches. The messages to the seven churches. In the church to Smyrna, we find the phrase, be faithful unto death. In the church, to Pergamum, the church of Pergamum, they are to remember Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed. That's pretty pretty heavy kind of thing that's going on here. Faithful ones of Smyrna and program we're told, to be faithful unto death, to acknowledge that one among the number who is a faithful witness and already martyred. You know what? We do not face that same level of physical threat in our lives, not yet. Not yet. I'm, I'm more concerned about the what's more typical, and that's the challenges of being faithful in the face of inconvenience and social pressure. Back in chapter 14, I itemized what were in that chapter as characteristics of the redeemed. i want to go back and look at those. The redeemed who are with the Lamb on Mount Zion there were characterized as being steadfastly resistant to idolatry of any kind. They follow their Savior wherever he may lead. They consider their dearly purchased freedom as the basis for God's ownership of them. They are resolutely committed to the truth and unblemished by falsehood. They are continuously keeping the commands of God and faith in Jesus. And I think we can add to that, they are faithful, trustworthy, dependable unto death. Those are your job requirements if you're going to claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I think sometimes... You know, we, none of this happens without grace in our lives. But I think sometimes we avoid these kinds of things because well, we can't ask people to do that. It's just so hard to do. But this is how we're supposed to do things. Being faithful may mean martyrdom, but it can equally mean living a consistent and fruitful Christian life on the earth until we're taken from it. Sometimes I think it would be easier for many of us to face that hypothetical dire situation when you're faced with a choice many of our brothers and sisters before us have had to do this deny Jesus or be killed right here and now in many ways I think it's harder to maintain the patient endurance and an unwavering commitment daily as strangers and aliens in this world looking for a country a city whose architect and builder is God But that's God's expectation of us as those who are called and chosen and faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have been chosen and called. And we thank you for the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that helps us to be faithful. But we admit, Father, that we fall so far short of these things so much of the time. I just pray that you'll remind us throughout this week coming up what our job description really is as followers of you. We commit ourselves to that in Jesus' name.